It's the first reading uh, for Advent, and we're going to look at uh, that passage this morning. And uh, in the um, uh, chapter 13 of Mark, Jesus makes uh, two predictions. So the first half uh, is like the first prediction, and the second half, which uh, we're looking at, is is a second prediction. And if you if you want to see the first prediction, have a look at verse one of Mark chapter. 13, Jesus says, um, it says that as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. Uh, Jesus is making uh, a prediction. It's around 33 AD, uh, and about 40 years later, in 70 AD, um, it's exactly what happened, his prediction. Um, And what what he's predicting is the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple. Uh, If you read the historian, ancient historian uh, Josephus, uh, who who writes about this period, he um, tells us that the horrendous detail of the Roman siege of Jerusalem where how people were some people were so desperate during the siege of Jerusalem that to stay alive they ate their own babies it was a horrendous time uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple. And so uh, Josephus is an ancient historian. You can look him up, Google him, chat GPT, whatever you like. He's uh, telling us um, after the fact that it happened. But in Mark chapter 13, we've got not um, a historian, we've got Jesus, a prophet, telling us before the fact. It was 33 AD and he's prophesying about this horrendous event and he's telling his disciples because he wants them to run for their lives. Get away before it happens. It's going to be a horrendous experience. And so he's warning them beforehand to uh, get away. That's the first prediction that Jesus makes about the destruction of the temple. But he makes another prediction too in Mark chapter 13. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the second prediction is about the second coming. Uh, So have a look at verse 26, the first verse in our reading, Mark chapter 13. He's predicting, uh, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So part of what we do during Advent when we're thinking about the first coming of Christ uh, and that that this was an event that was promised and foretold, um, as we heard from Mark, hundreds and hundreds of years ago that really happened, what we do during Advent is we also reflect on the promise of his second coming. The first coming was promised, it's already happened. The second coming was promised, but it hasn't yet happened. And so during Advent, we reflect on the fact that he's going to come back, come back again. Uh, And so this morning, as we look at the passage, I want to ask three questions. You ready? The first thing is, what is Jesus saying in this passage? We don't have time to go through all of it, but we're going to ask, what is Jesus saying? Secondly, what difference does it make for any of us? And then thirdly, finally, what does it mean for us to keep Watch. Jesus says it again and again. Uh, just keep awake, keep watch. So that's where we're going this morning. And so that first question we're looking at, what is Jesus saying? Verse 26, he says, The Son of Man will be coming on the clouds with power and with glory. Well, what's he talking about? 
Well, let's just do a brief survey of the whole Bible because it's relevant for us. We've just done a series on Genesis 1 to 11, and you'll remember that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve um, enjoyed the unfiltered, unadulterated glory, presence, and power of God in the Garden of Eden. And in the presence of his overwhelming beauty and power and glory and goodness, there was no death. There was no decay. There was no disease. Uh, We have this picture of this overflowing abundance with the river of life flowing out of the garden to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. It's this picture of the abundant overflow of God's goodness and presence and power. It was a beautiful garden paradise because God's presence was in the midst of it. But of course, Adam and Eve reached out to put themselves in the place of God. And in a sense, the rivers stopped flowing. And now with you and me at the center of the universe, there is death, there is darkness, there is decay. Everything's out of order because humankind has put themselves at the center where God should be. And so in a sense, the rest of the story of the Bible is about how can God's glorious life-giving presence and power come back to be in the midst of his people, driving away darkness and death and decay, bringing healing and restoration. Now that's the background to this picture of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and with glory. What's with the coming on the clouds? Well, it's not just because clouds are like a comfortable form of transport, like he likes to ride on clouds. No, the, the idea of clouds has a rich biblical symbolism and texture in the Old Testament. It comes up everywhere uh, in the Old Testament. So uh, most prominently and firstly, it's in the Exodus. Remember that they're set free from slavery in Egypt. They pass through the promised land. And how does God lead them in the wilderness? By a pillar of cloud. And then remember, it it says that he goes up the mountain, Moses does, to get the Ten Commandments to meet with God. And in Exodus 24, 15, it says, when Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. It's the presence, the almighty presence of God. It happens again, actually. Um, remember, God um, gave instructions for the tabernacle, the, the, the kind of house of God as they wandered through the wilderness. They'd set up the tabernacle. And, and it says often, for example, in Exodus 33, verse 19, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down. That This cloud represents the, the Shekinah glory and power of God that drives away darkness and death and decay. But... But it keeps going. Solomon, he dedicates the temple. So remember, the tabernacle was like a tent. They'd set it up. They'd pack it down. It was while there were nomads wandering in the wilderness. But once they settled in the um, in Jerusalem, in the kingdom of Israel, they set up a, a permanent house in the temple. And Solomon, in the dedication of the temple, um, it says in 1 Kings 8.10, when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. So this is the imagery of the clouds in the Old Testament, but it continues in the New Testament. Because remember that story where Jesus goes up the Mount Transfiguration with Peter, James and John. 
And like Moses appears and Elijah appears. But it says this in Matthew 17 verse 5. When Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so when you get all that background, it's just one phrase, Jesus, the son of man coming on the clouds, it's talking about the presence and the power and the brightness and the brilliance of God that will disintegrate all darkness and death once and for all and establish a new heavens and a new earth that will be brimming with life and glory and power. That's what the Son of Man is going to come to do one day when he comes back. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. Um, This is actually the lesson of the fig tree as well. Did you notice that um, verse that he says? Have a look. Verse 28, Jesus says, From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Uh, It's so good for us to understand... um, the whole context of the Bible, because again, we read over Son of Man and we probably think, oh, that's referring to God's humanity. No, it's not. It's Daniel 7, the prophecy of the glorious Son of Man. Same with the fig tree, right? We just read it and go, oh yeah, the fig tree, good. All right, I got one of those. We got one of those in our backyard. No, the imagery of the fig tree in the Old Testament was this picture of fruitfulness and prosperity and abundance. You know how um, they talk about the promised land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's an image like that where the fig tree was a pl- picture of abundant prosperity and abundant wealth. It talks about kings sitting under their vines and their fig trees. It's this luscious picture of abundance. So what's Jesus saying? What's the lesson of the fig tree? Jesus is saying, I've come to bring the ultimate summer and the ultimate spring of which your best summer that you've ever experienced and the best spring that you've ever enjoyed is but a dim shadow of the ultimate summer and the ultimate spring that I am coming to bring. Does this sound good to you? Well, it sounded good to C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. You know the picture, the story of the cursed winter of the white witch covered the whole world? Here's how C.S. Lewis depicts this spring of Aslan. He says, the sky became bluer and bluer. In the wide glades, there were primroses. The trees began to come fully alive. The larches and birches were covered with green. The laburnums with gold. Soon the beech trees had put forth their delicate, transparent leaves. The witch's dwarf said, this is no thaw, suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. This is Aslan's doing. This is Aslan's doing. Jesus is saying he's coming to break the darkness, the decay, the depression once and for all, and to bring about the ultimate spring with the warmth of his radiance and the countenance of his glorious face, washing over the world as the glory, the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Jesus is saying, Watch out. It's coming. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. But what difference does it make? 
What difference does it make to us now? Well, well, Jesus says, he repeats it again and again. Verse 33, beware, keep alert. Verse 35, therefore, keep awake. Verse 36, or else he may find you asleep. In verse 37, and what I say to you, the disciples, I say to all, keep awake. So what difference does it make to us? Well, you need to be awake and not be asleep when he comes back. Tim Keller writes that anyone who yearns for the second coming hates the same things God hates and wants the same things God wants and is working right alongside of him for those things, but not in the same way as so many other people work against justice and poverty with a hopeless feeling like we're never going to get anywhere. Not like that. Not with despair, not with anger, not with lashing out, not with apocalyptic nihilism that we see so much in the media. No, with abounding optimism and hope, knowing that this is coming. We will win. We're not working for victory. We're working from victory. My favorite verse up on my wall, when I despair of my own progress in the law and the monsters within, is Philippians 1 verse 6. That being confident of this, sometimes I'm not confident that I'm making any progress. And Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. How many of you have given up, given up the ghost? Because you're not confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. It's too hard. It's not going to work. Well, may God breathe his breath of life into you and confidence that he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That means every time I get down, I get knocked down, I get up again. It's like the Chumbawamba song. Do you know that one? I get knocked down, but I get up again. I don't want to get that in, stuck in your head. He's coming. Victory is ours because of Christ. I think of the endless hope of people like Martin Luther King Jr. Think about what he was up against. Who refused to resort to violence and destruction in the face of deeply entrenched racism and injustice. He once said this, so I say to you, seek God and discover him and make him a power in your life. Without him, all of our efforts turn to ashes and our sun rises into darkest nights. Without him, life is a meaningless drama with the decisive scenes missing. But with him, we are able to rise from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. With him, we are able to rise from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy. If that was true of him, then it's true of you. Don't give up. Get up. Whatever the demons are, don't give up. They've been defeated in Christ. And don't give in to despair, violence, nihilism, apocalyptic doom. Whether they're the demons inside or the demons out. I think of my friend, the environmentalist, Tony Ronaldo. 
who in the face of overwhelming climate despair, with a large serve of helplessness and hopelessness about the future of the planet. But don't you just find it so overwhelming? The sense of despair and anxiety about the future? In the face of all this, Tony Ronaldo, my friend, who's an environmentalist, he won the Christian Book of the Year two years ago. If you're looking for a Christmas present, get The Forest Underground. It's an amazing story. Tony is defiantly filled with overwhelming joy and hope about the future of the planet. Where does it come from? It comes from his faith in Christ and in the coming of the Son of Man who will restore the whole earth. In in his book, he finishes like this, in the face of environmental destruction and injustice, my journey started with a child's prayer asking God to use me somehow, somewhere to make a difference. I believe God honoured that prayer. I'm in awe of how he has and is answering my prayer. There is little room for doubt that God has indeed prepared good things for us to do. Actually, that's the point of the little parable that Jesus tells, that that God has prepared good things for us to do. Have a look what Jesus says, says in verse 34. He says that the second coming is like a man, that's Jesus, going on a journey when he leaves home. He's talking about how Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he puts his slaves in charge. Who's that? That's us. We're his slaves. And then he says, each with his work. Do you know what that means? That means that as long as you're here, God's got work for you to do. He's left. He's given you the keys. He's put you in the house. And he's got work for you to do. Each one has their assigned task. Yours yours isn't mine. Mine isn't yours. But each has their assigned task. And as long as you're here, he's got work for you to do. It's good news. We had a wonderful story of this just this week from our dear Meg, those who know Meg, who's getting more and more frail. She's now living in aged care in in North Fremantle um, with the mission that we had Last week, she was just delighted with the young people who came in to sing carols and to share the, the hope of Christmas. And the, and the message that they shared was on John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Meg in her frailty was just beaming and overjoyed with this message. And you know what she did? They gave her this booklet of carols with John three sixteen in it. And she cut out John 3.16 and she gave it to the nurse who was caring for her. And she said, Jesus did this for you. If you know Meg, she is frail. She is weak. But as long as God has us here, he has work for us to do. And the nurse caring for Meg in her anxiety, in her frailty, knew that Meg loves the scriptures. And so this nurse who doesn't know the Lord was reading the scriptures to Meg to comfort her. And only the day before we were looking at this passage and looking each other in the eye and saying, as long as you're here, God has work for you to do. Can I get an amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Friends, if you're weak, you are not as weak as Meg. 
If you are overwhelmed and overcome, you are not as overwhelmed and as overcome as Meg or Martin Luther or Tony Ronaldo. But as long as he has you here, he has work for you to do. And there is hope. We win. He's coming back. What difference does it make? Finally, what does it mean to watch? Jesus says it again and again and again. Watch. Stay awake. Have a look at verse 35. He says, therefore, keep awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or at dawn. In ancient Rome, these were the four watches of the night. You know, shifts, the guards on the watchtower. These were the four watches of the night. He may come at any time. You need to be ready and not asleep. Jesus says the master could come, firstly, in the evening. It's interesting when we trace the story of Mark tracing the story of Jesus because in the very next chapter, Mark says, in the evening. Mark tells us, when it was evening... What did Jesus do? In the next chapter, when it was evening, he sat down and he had a meal with his disciples and he looked at them and he said, one of you will betray me. Watch out. Don't be asleep. The second watch, Jesus says the master may come at midnight. And then in the very next chapter, Mark tells us, later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus urged his disciples to do what? To stay awake and to pray. And what did they do? They all fell asleep. Jesus said, watch out. Continuing along, the master could come back at cockcrow. And in the very next chapter, we're told that after Peter denied Jesus three times, what happened? The cock crowed and Peter broke down and wept. Even though Jesus had said, watch out. And finally, Jesus says in his story, the master could come at dawn. And if you look at Mark chapter 15, verse 1, he says, as soon as it was morning... They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Jesus said, keep watch. Stay awake. He could come at any time. And so my question is this. How on earth could these guys have anything to look forward to in the return of the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and glory to judge the living and the dead after all that? They failed him in the evening. They betrayed him at midnight. They denied him at cockcrow and they abandoned him in the morning. How on earth could they look forward to his return in glory and power? And what about us? How can we look forward to that? As Francis Turretin says, when we rise to the heavenly tribunal and place before our eyes that supreme judge by whose brightness the stars are darkened, at whose strength the mountains melt, by whose anger the earth is shaken, 
whose justice not even the angels are equal to bear. How on earth can any of us bear it with the coming of the Son of Man, let alone these disciples? Well, I think Mark gives us the clue in verse 24. Jesus says, The sun will be darkened when he comes. The the moon will not give its light. The powers in the heavens will be shaken. But then when Mark describes the crucifixion in Mark chapter 15, he uses very similar language. Listen to this. Darkness came down, utter darkness over the whole land. And Matthew 27, he says, when Jesus was crucified, the earth quaked, the rocks split and the sun went out. And Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've, this is weird. We've been talking about how the, when the Son of Man comes, when the presence and power of God comes, it's going to bring healing and restoration and light. It's going to drive away darkness and despair. So what's happening with Jesus then on the cross? This is not him experiencing the presence of God, which, by the way, he'd only ever known for all eternity past, the intimate, unfiltered glory and power and presence of God. No, he's not experiencing the presence of God. He's experiencing the absence of God, the abandonment of God, not because of any darkness in him, but because of the darkness inside of us. Jesus paid our penalty so that we could get God's presence. The light of the world, the holy and righteous judge, the son of man came down at Christmas, not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment in himself on the tree. And so St. John of Patmos in the book of Revelation, he has a vision of the glorious throne of God that belongs to Jesus, our judge. And when he looks at this throne, he doesn't see a lion. What does he see? He sees a lamb. Revelation chapter 5 verse 6 says, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing on the throne. You see, the only way that the disciples can look forward to the coming of the Son of Man is if they know, and because they know, that the judge of the living and the dead came to bear their judgment on the cross. All their darkness, all of their evil, all of their shame so that the death and the destruction that we deserve became his on the cross and the light and the glory and the beauty and power that is in him has been given to us so that Jesus says, not only I am the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. And when he comes, it says there will be no need for a son because he will be the light. He did it all for us on the cross. And so now every single one of us who has put his hope in his return can be fully confident that while we're still here, we've got work to do and he's coming back to bring us home. We're working from victory, not for victory. Some of you are in really, really difficult situations. But don't give up. Don't despair. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 verse 8 says, Do not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest. Don't give up. Tell God I need help. If it's your body, if it's your mind, if it's your emotions, if it's your marriage, if it's your relationships, 
Do whatever you can. Fight for your lives. But not for victory, from victory. Don't give up. So I want to finish with a prayer from Martin Luther King Jr., who knew despair, who knew what it felt like to lash out in violence and anger. Let me pray. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and lift us from the dark valley of despair to the bright mountain of hope, from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy, to him be power and authority forever and ever. Amen.